Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. When you think about our world today, turbulent might be the first word you use to describe it. After two years of upheaval from COVID, we're suddenly faced with the emergence of highly disruptive AI technology, and we're bewildered by surprisingly large numbers of employee layoffs taking place in the absence of a real recession. The crisis in Ukraine continues with no end in sight. It's still undetermined whether people will be returning to the office most days, and inflation is adding financial stress to all of our lives. To put it lightly, the world we live and lead in today is filled with uncertainty, ambiguity, and complexity. And there are simply no signs we may one day return to a simpler life. Our guest today is Jean Gomes, author of Leading in a Nonlinear World, Building Well-Being, Strategic, and Innovation Mindsets for the Future, a book the Financial Times spotlighted as one of its most anticipated books of 2023. Jean was the co-author with Tony Schwartz of the New York Times bestseller, The Way We're Working Isn't Working. And his new book shows how our mindset, more than our knowledge and expertise, has the potential to be our greatest asset in facing the future and making important decisions when we have little, if any, data to support us. Tapping into emerging science and research, which proves our basic understanding of the term mindset, is missing some important dimensions. Gomes' book shows that our mindset isn't just a set of beliefs that shape how we make sense of the world, it's actually the interplay of our feeling, thinking, and seeing. And while a lot of us instinctively go to our minds when we are having to make difficult or spontaneous decisions, it turns out that we have more expedient and incisive intelligence to leverage when we learn to listen to what our bodies tell us. Remarkably, science proves that our bodies know significantly earlier than our brains when we're about to make a bad decision, and our feelings tell us the truth about situations that a rational mind often cannot detect. You know, while the expressions lead from the heart and heart-led leader are suddenly gaining wider acceptance in business, they're almost exclusively used as a metaphor. But in my case, I really want to make sure I'm clear on this. I mean it literally. I titled my book and this podcast, Lead from the Heart, specifically because of the emerging science which proves our hearts are not just blood pumps, but are also a form of intelligence that hold great influence over human choices and behavior. And because we no longer live in a linear world where both our problems and our solutions are clear, our rational thinking brains alone cannot adequately respond to the nonlinear world in which we find ourselves today. So, Jean joins us to explain why tapping into the intelligence of our bodies, which very much includes the heart, provides a profound competitive advantage in leadership because it consistently leads to better judgments. And the best news is that learning how to do this is easy. And with that as an introduction, let me welcome you to the podcast, John. It's a pleasure, Mark. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, thanks for doing this. It's Friday night, it's late in London, and I'm just starting my day. So we're at different ends of our week. And so I really appreciate your being here. I think I really want to just start off with some basic grounding. So I have one question for you to start, which is, tell us what you mean when you say that we live in a non-linear world. I think a lot of us can imagine, but pin it down in your understanding. Yeah, so a linear world 
nobody lives in a completely linear world, but a linear world or a linear problem is where we are pretty clear about what the problem is and what the solution is. We can go from A to B with a high degree of confidence. A non-linear problem is one where we don't really understand the problem or the solution. And more of the problems that we face, the situations that we find ourselves in, have this kind of non-linear nature to them. And what I see with the work I do with individuals and organizations is that they're not very good at handling non-linear problems. And if that is the hallmark of the world they're in, we probably need to think about how we respond to that. So that's the kind of the problem we're solving for. How do we deal with this non-linear world that we find ourselves in? So when we started talking earlier before recording, you sort of pinned it down and said 2016 is when the speed of complexity, ambiguity, and uncertainty really, really accelerated. So mm. tell us why. Why then? Well, the IMF have been tracking this since the Second World War in a global uncertainty index, which looks at uncertainty in terms of politics and economics. And so it's on been on the rise consistently since then, driven by globalization, by very disruptive technologies, deregulation that comes out of globalization, geopolitics, and some very powerful new types of organizations that are changing the world rapidly with their technologies. But it spiked in 2016, and it has continued on that path. And I think probably the Trump presidency, Brexit, the kind of geopolitical changes that were brought around by that in our relationship between America and, and China, and then obviously COVID, mm -hmm. COVID and the Ukraine war. And underlying all of that is like huge uncertainty around the workplace and hybridized workplaces and so on. So the list goes on and on and on in terms of the things that make your guess and my guess and predictions about what next year, the year after look like pretty difficult. So did you write this book specifically to help us navigate this uncertainty? Is that one of the big ambitions of the book? It is. And, you know, like I mentioned to you in an earlier conversation, I've been thinking about and working on this book for a very long time. And I've talked to literally thousands of people in the process, ranging from the people who, you know, I'd hope would benefit from a new way of thinking about this to the people who I think have got answers to how to respond to this. So the kind of non-linear part of this, I've always been involved in change. I've always been either designing change, managing change, leading change in some way, shape or another. And so as this inflection point that happened a few years ago seemed to be driven by uncertainty, that's where the book kind of really came, that idea of a non-linear world really came to my mind. So... I have some detailed questions that I want to get into with you. But before we do, frame up the book. Like, what is the thesis? And what were your major conclusions? Yeah. So let's just give people an understanding of, here's where I'm coming from with respect to this massive uncertainty, ambiguity, and complexity of life that's not going to slow down. There's no evidence of it. And we need to deal better with it. We need to go with it versus resist it. Yeah. Well, I guess a number of things, the root of what I'm trying to do in the book. The first is I'm trying to identify something that's been bugging me for a mm -hmm. very long time, which is there's something missing in how we try to manage change or transformation or respond to 
to uncertainty. And that is that you know, organizations are very skilled at building reliable risk, you know, sort of de-risking kind of organizations. And so when they when they try to change, they really want to try and preserve what they've already got and change at the same time. And so they've become very good at adopting ideas that help them to do that, trying to decode in very fine detail the behaviors that will deliver that. And that sort of concreteness is important to the rational people that run organizations typically. But that's not how people change and respond to change. They are set by the context of other people, the culture they're in. And the fourth kind of dimension of this is their psychological responses to this. And so I've never been satisfied with the answers in that last category about what's going on inside people. And so I really wanted to understand what was happening. And then the other part of this, which is another thing that kind of bugged me and maybe questioned things, particularly in Silicon Valley 15 years ago, the word mindset just increasingly became used by people to describe all sorts of things relating to this inner response people had to challenges. And the dictionary definition, which is the fixed set of attitudes and beliefs and assumptions that people have, they weren't using the word to describe that. They were using it in two kind of ways. The first was to describe someone's orientation to the challenge. And that in part was about attitude. But it was also wider than that. They were kind of categorizing, labeling people and personality types and whether they would fit in or not into a certain set of circumstances. So that was one kind of way in which people were using this word mindset. And the other was almost outside of the person, which was an idea, a concept. So you could have a Cold War mindset or a Brexit mindset or a project management mindset. It's nothing to do with the individuals per se. It's to do with adopting a mental framework or a mental model about how to look at the world. So this got me really curious about what's missing in people's understanding of stuff. And so I talked to literally hundreds or maybe thousands of people over the course of the last decade about what did they really mean by the word mindset? And when you got deeper than these two definitions that people immediately kind of spat out, what they actually meant, what they intended to say was, how does this person make sense of the world? How do they see the world? And so that got me thinking, well, how do people make sense of the world? And the kind of psychology that I studied didn't really provide me with sufficiently satisfying answers to that. So I turned to what I'd first done, uh, my first degree, which was in neuroscience. And it wasn't called neuroscience then, it was kind of neurochemistry because it predated all the, the imaging technologies when I did this in the early 80s. It was the 90s when that really came on stream. And what I really wanted to understand was how does the brain and the body work together to make sense of the world? And that just took me on a fascinating journey to really understand what mindset actually is, as opposed to, you know, this kind of rather fuzzy, vague and varied notion that people have of it. Where does, tell me, tell me if I'm right or wrong, the common understanding of mindset today, I think, relates to Carol Dweck's work and, you know, Satya Nadella basically made this the Bible of Microsoft saying that there are two kinds of people, ones with a growth mindset and one with a fixed mindset. And we're going to be the growth mindset people, mm. which is this fundamental idea that you can continue to grow through your entire life if you approach it that way. Yeah. So where does that fit within your definition of mindset and how have you expanded it? So 
that is absolutely what kind of kicked off the the current craze and you know fad around the use of the word mindset and there's nothing wrong with that as a as an idea because it is definitely has a rightness to it we see people and maybe our own children we think yeah if only they believed in themselves they would be able to achieve more mm-hmm. the problem is twofold the first is that's not how you make sense of the world if you think of mindset as literally just a belief or an idea about something it gives you a partial understanding and it's what's missing in the way that we perceive and make sense of what's going on so my expansion of this is to build on carol's work and say the idea of a belief in something that's possible is part of it but it's not the whole picture and if you look at the application of carol dweck's work which i don't think is wrong when it went into the classroom it failed spectacularly and all the research that has been done shows that it you know sort of you're talking marginal gains, five, ten percent of of students actually being taught these practices that came out of the lab where they got very good results. When it went into a real world situation, most gains weren't observed. And she herself recognized that didn't believe the theory was wrong, but the execution was much more complicated than we thought. So what I've come to is looking at various forms of neuroscience and experimental psychology, that there are three components of mindset. The first is grounded in our conscious feelings, our physical feelings of the body. And what they do is they navigate us through the world. You know, they're the most profound way in which our body makes sense of what's going on to keep us alive. That's the primary function, the mission of the brain to keep us alive. And it does that by regulating our metabolism through allostosis, keeping all of the millions and billions of transactions that are taking place at a cellular level in some sort of equilibrium and responding to the environment. And that's mostly what your brain and body are working to do. That is the foundation on which we experience the world. On top of that, we have our emotions that we construct to make sense of what's happening to us, bearing in mind what's happening with our metabolism. So that's the feel part of mindset. The think part of mindset is allied to what Carol Dweck's talking about, which is what are the assumptions that we make all the time about what's happening? Because our brain runs on predictions. So our reality is in fact constructed by a stream of predictions. And assuming that those predictions are right, everything's great, we lower a need for consciousness and we can operate through habit and, and response. But in a world where more and more of what we're faced with is uncertain or new or ambiguous, then we need to be in a process where we can constantly assess the assumptions and ask ourselves, are we right to believe that? Because if not, we'll find ourselves quickly out of step with the environment. And then the third part of it is how we see the world, the frames that we hold up that allow us to see information, discern it, to disregard it as irrelevant or to ignore it. So we have this model of mindset, which is grounded in the neuroscience and psychology of our brains and bodies and how they work together, how we feel, think, and see. And that creates a constant stream of instances of knowing, of doubting, of certainty. And that's how mindset works, as far as I can see, given this long research project that we've undertaken. Okay, let's chunk down and give us an example of perhaps a workplace situation, a leadership challenge that a manager is facing 
and how these three components influence their choices. And I guess I'm really looking for is like, what's the takeaway that you want readers and listeners to get from your new understanding of mindset? Mm. Well, when you throw something at me and I'll, I'll see if I can respond. Oh, <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm the quizzer here. All right. So you've overhired. Mm. You've realized that you've overhired as a leader and you start to see that the projections that you made for your company to which you hired two in anticipation that that trend would continue is actually declining and you no longer need these people. So you have choices to make about what to do about that. Mm. Do you have a hiring freeze? Do you ask people to take a one-month unpaid vacation to lower costs? Do you lay people off in an email? So what's the mindset that you use? How does a leader make those decisions? I don't know if this is the best example, but it's the one that popped into my head. Well, no, I think anything, any human challenge, any activity that requires us to make judgments, because if you think about where we create value as human beings in organizations, in organizational life, is there are four things that we do. We make sense of what's going on in the situation sense-making, what is actually happening as opposed to what we think is happening or what we believe is happening based on the past. So there's a kind of clear-sighted situation analysis. The second is that we have to solve problems. We have to have either creative or rational problem solving. That's the second thing. We have to make decisions. We have to have good judgment. And then we have to form and sustain value through relationships. You know, as AI, as other technologies start to constantly challenge what human beings do in the world, those are the things that, at least at the moment, we can't see technology replacing. So in your situation there, the first thing is, what are we actually seeing in this situation? So you describe, you know, we've overhired. What we see a lot in these kind of situations is that people make decisions based on predictions that don't turn out to be true. So they either hire too many people or they fire too many people in the situation. And then in six to 12 months later, they're trying to hire those people back and, and so on. So the first thing is to, to zoom out and to see, you know, like, am I holding the right frame in this situation? Because it may be that I'm framing this too tightly. I've got, you know, frame fixedness in this situation. And it may be that if I was smart, I could look at this situation differently. So the first thing is like, does the frame suit this? Is there another one that I could hold up to this? And the other one might be, well, what does the future want? The future might say, well, this might be an expense, but you might be able to find a way of using these people differently. It may be the answer is still no, but you're giving yourself options. You, you're not allowing a fixed perspective to dominate that. The second part of all of this is that that frame allows you to challenge the assumptions you're making about why you hired people in the first place. What was the cycle that got you into that situation? Why did you not anticipate this? Did you do it too quickly? Did you hire the wrong people? And so on. And then the other part of the equation is what are our feelings telling us about this situation? Because our feelings and our emotions and the piece that fascinated me in terms of this research was the work of people like Lisa Feldman Barrett, which overturns hundreds of years of received wisdom about what emotions are as hardwired responses to external stimuli. Instead of that, we construct emotions to make sense of the world. They are part of our sense-making and rational system. They're just in a different kind of end of the spectrum. So they tell us the truth about things that are happening unfiltered 
by the kind of self-justification that the rational mind often jumps into. So when you ask yourself, what is my emotion telling me about this? It'll be telling me a number of things. It'll be telling me I'm not getting what I need. It'll be telling me I'm not valued in this situation. It'll tell me I'm not clear. I'm not connected. I don't feel a sense of purpose. It will tell you those things really quickly if you zone into it. So when it comes to any kind of moral dilemma, it's a very fast way of tapping into what's actually happening here. So I would think of mindset as a flexible way in this situation of looking at the situation and going, do I have options and what's the right thing to do? Because we were talking earlier about Google's recent sort of approach to exiting people out of the organization. And I think if its leaders adopted different mindsets to approach that question, they might have come up with some different approaches. I am very excited now. So we're really getting into what I took from the book. And I love your punctuation around fixed perspectives, because I think it's almost binary. It appears looking from the outside in that when companies say, we're not getting enough revenue and we need to cut costs, that the first thing they think to do is to let people go. Mm. So that just seems fundamentally flawed to me. But then you threw in this whole idea of what are our feelings telling us. So you start with, is my perspective fixed? Which is very much what seems evident in a lot of these companies, is it just seems like this is the automatic decision we make. Mm. And you're saying, unfix your perspective and dig deeper. But then you're saying, and also ask your feelings. And that is very much part of our thesis here is that feelings have influence, profound influence on us much more than we realize. And so what did you learn? Tell us about feelings and where they are and how they inform us. There's two things that became, and I'll I'll try and simplify this down because it can easily get into a lot of jargon and, and science. But the two things that really came out to me is that I was absolutely fascinated with the research on some really pioneering work done around consciousness. And consciousness is described, I suppose, as our most fundamental sense of self. You experience this for a few seconds when you wake up. You don't know where you are. You don't, you're not feeling anything emotionally. You're not thinking anything. Assuming you haven't had a dream or something like that. You're not thinking anything at all. It's this glorious feeling almost like, you know, being in space or, you know, you could be anywhere. And then the minute you start thinking, that it evaporates. Now, for hundreds of years, we've been dogged with this problem about what consciousness is. And it was kind of perpetuated by René Descartes saying, you know, the mind-body problem, consciousness can't exist as a function of the body. But what I took from people like Mark Solms and Neil Seth and other neuroscientists is that we're now getting closer and closer to a new understanding of what consciousness is, this most profound sense of self, is that it originated literally in physical feelings of thirst and hunger and pain and cold and light and so on. And it gave the first creatures that could move an an evolutionary advantage of being able to move away from things and towards things. And that's the source of consciousness, not the higher form of the brain, not some sort of God-given thing. It comes from actually the primitive part of our brain. Mm. And what that means is that our connection to the environment starts there. Our ability to read what's happening in the world, the billions of bits of information that flow into our body every minute, that's the origin of them. And when we start to tap into that, you create a connection between the body and the brain. 
that many people have cut off. They're not consciously aware of what's going on in their body. And the neuroscientists that have been looking at decision-making show that the body knows before the mind, sometime significantly earlier, when it's about to make a bad judgment. So Antonio Damasio, for example, had run these experiments a long time ago showing when you're giving people betting challenges and they don't know which are good and bad decks of cards, you can measure their resistance, the sweat resistance on their fingertips, which shows that they're feeling anxiety. And their body knows, their fingers know before their minds do, which are bad and good decks of cards to bet on. Seconds, minutes beforehand. And this has been shown time and time again, that there's a form of intelligence that we are not really aware of. And when you start to tap into that and you start to nurture it and encourage it, then you get competitive advantage because what actually is happening is your brain is being given information earlier and allowed to process it and factor it into the rational part of your thinking in advance. So you make better judgments and research looking at people who have sort of their lives depend on making split-second decisions shows when they have that connection working, it's called interoception, which I know you've talked to Annie Murphy-Paul and others on the show before. When that connection is working, they get a competitive advantage in the world. So this is really important, and it's the primary reason that I was excited to talk to you. So you've made it clear in your book and just now that most of us don't have access to that information. Mm. We, we tend to live in our brains and we're not tapping into the intelligence of our bodies, which I'm hoping you'll confirm that the heart very much plays a big role in that. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we tap into that intelligence? So people listening to this are like, okay, that makes interesting sense, but how do I actually do it? So what would be your most practical advice on that? And I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, well, we do say things like follow your heart and trust your heart. We don't say trust your mind, follow your mind. So there's sort of a grand understanding amongst us all that the body has always been there to inform us. We just haven't been willing to trust it for a really long time, it seems. Yeah, because it feels like a leap of faith. It feels like, I mean, the ancient traditions have long avowed that we should do these things. Science is now showing us why we should do these things and how to do them practically. So to come to your question about how do you operationalize this, it takes two forms. The first is to understand what is the principal mechanism by which you tap into this. And when we use this word self-awareness, it's sort of a general catch-all and most people don't really understand what you're talking about. So they might say, are you aware of what's happening you know, in your body? And most people wouldn't know what you mean by that. And the second derivation, they go, this person... They're not self-aware around other people. So self-awareness does have two forms or it has several forms, but you know, it, it has this kind of interior form. Do I know what's going on inside me? And it has an exterior form. Do I understand how other people see me, are experiencing me and so on? And both are important to build a mindset. When it comes to the interior, there are layers of self-awareness. And I talk about these layers and they start with conscious awareness of the body. They then move to our emotions and you know, what they are telling us about what's happening, both in ourselves and with others. We then have the next layer, which is meta-emotions, which is our ability to think about our emotions. How do we feel about how we're feeling? And that's really important because when we don't understand that, we make misjudgments. The next level up above that are the assumptions that propel action, our responses to things and, and our decisions around things. 
And then what sits on top of that is our ability to be able to interrogate all these layers, our metacognition, to be able to think about thinking. And each of these is grounded in different parts of the brain and body, and therefore each of them can be improved. You can systematically increase these layers of self-awareness. But the wonderful thing, the brilliant thing, is that there's nothing complicated about this at all. Everybody can do it. You don't need to go on a sophisticated training program. The means is there for everybody. And it's simply the process of zoning into different aspects of this. So let me start with you know the most simple thing that you can do. It's called the body scan. And that is that when you wake up in the morning, you have this moment where, as I've said, you've got this raw consciousness. Now, if you tap into that, what you're doing is you're creating a connection between your body and your brain. You're strengthening all of the information that's coming in from your body, which pulls into the heart. And this is why the heart is so important as an organ, because all of that information from the sensors in your body that give you this general readout on your metabolism pull in your heart. And from the heart, they go to the brain through the vagus nerve into a part of the brain called the insular cortex. The insular cortex is incredibly important in mobilizing responses to situations. And we can talk about that a little bit more in terms of research that's fascinating around that. So the body scan is literally 30 or 60 seconds when you're in that moment of freedom where you just pay attention to what's going on in your body. And I describe it, it's seen in lots of different kind of meditative traditions, but I'm not looking at it from that perspective. I'm looking at it purely from the neuroscience point of view, which is you pay attention to the top of your scalp, you move your attention to your eyes, to your throat, to your chest, your heart, to your stomach, your groin, your knees, your ankles, your feet, and you just linger on them and you ask yourself, how does it feel? And that ability to just tap into those physical feelings generates this free flow of information pulled in the heart through the vagus nerve into the insular cortex. And that creates part of a mindset. It starts over a period of time to improve your capacity to tap into it. And it's called interoceptive accuracy. And it's measured. It's such an easy way to measure it is the difference between your estimate of how many heartbeats you have in a minute versus what's actually happening. So I did this over a long period of time, over 441 days during COVID. I ran this experiment where I measured my interoceptive accuracy. And by doing this exercise, it went from a kind of average rating to excellent within about four weeks, five weeks, something like that. And I had a few challenges. My father died in one period during that time and I fell off the wagon in terms of being able to do the practices around it. But within a few weeks, I reestablished it and it quickly picked up again. So it's malleable. Why is that important? The ability to estimate your heartbeat. Why is it important? Okay, because this is the kind of gold standard in this field of interoception is this test because all this information is pulled in your heart. So your ability to register your heartbeat is a brilliant way of recognizing whether you know what's going on inside your body. And come back to this piece of research that a number of people in London did, Hugo Critchley and Sarah Garfinkel on the trading floor in London, where they measured the interoceptive accuracy of traders. And these are people, by the way, who don't get paid a salary. They only get paid if they deliver gains. So it's a very risky environment. What they found was there was a direct correlation between interoceptive accuracy and these people's success by some considerable margin. And not only that, 
the longevity in what is an incredibly draining environment. And this has been repeated time after time since then. This was done in 2016, and it's been done in many, many different fields, ranging from decision-making through to autism. And when you train people to improve their interoceptive accuracy, they get this information faster. It's unconscious information. You don't recognize it. You're able to make smarter decisions. Your health improves. Your judgment improves. Your relationships improve because there's something called social interoception. Your ability to manage the body budget of other people is all increased because you now have the capacity to actually know what's going on inside your body. Mm. And by anticipating it, you can see when you might get triggered, for example, you can see how other people are responding, it improves your empathy and so on. So it has a number of benefits, which I explore in the book. It's going to be regarded as like a super skill in years to come. I'm absolutely certain of that because the evidence that's being built up by the neuroscience community is unbelievably exciting. This is actually a very spiritual idea, interoception, right? Yes. And so it's interesting because personally, I'm trying to be concise here, but how I learned about interoception without having the language around interoception had to deal with working with somebody who was helping me heal a very painful upbringing and clearing mm. my body of that energy, if you will. Sounds woo-woo, but it was, it's been very, very helpful. And yep. in the process, what she has taught me to do is interoception to not just be able to feel into myself, to understand what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling, especially, and how that's influencing me, but to feel into other people. And to be able to feel into other people, I mean, I actually, and this will sound crazy to some people too, but I've got a very large Twitter following. And somebody asked me once, like, how did you get 142,000 people following you on Twitter? And I I thought, I said, I don't really know. And then I started realizing, well, I think part of it is that people can feel something from me. But mm. it started with me feeling into them and sensing what they might need. And I've never met these people. This is all on, on the Internet. And so it all sounds very crazy until you put the science around this. And you say that this is going to be infinitely more important or at least equivalently important to our emotional intelligence abilities. And you call this the eighth sense. What I have found from a leadership standpoint, quite honestly, John, is that it makes me powerful mm. in, in a very positive way, not a usury way, but in a way of, okay, I can feel what this person needs right now. And so based on what they need, I'm going to give that to them. Yeah, And when you can do that for people, you're operating at an entirely different level. I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. I mean, I think the thing that is prevailing in our society at the moment is a fundamental assumption that we can't get what we need. If you think about all the demands that are placed upon us, all the uncertainty, all of the, the kind of choice that we have, the irony of it is that we have these rising economic standards that have been going for decades yet we're getting less of the things that we really crave for. What connecting with your body does is it helps you to ground yourself in need. You can ask yourself the question, what do I need? And what you might need in a situation is nothing to do with what you want or what you think other people think you want. It's, I need rest. I need closeness. I need peace. I need recovery. I need food. I need <laughs> exercise. Mm -hmm. And because we're cut off to that, that flow of information, we respond either to what we've been doing, we respond to what we think will give us 
kind of um, quick fix of those things like TV or alcohol or drugs or whatever. And we've lost the connection with what we need. And when you get what you need, you break a cycle of resentment because one of the most fundamental things that happens when you don't get what you need at any level, you feel an unconscious form of resentment. And then you have to justify that. You have to blame other people. Sometimes you blame yourself. But either way, resentment is a corrosive force. And you you talked about, you know, sort of painful events in your early life. One of the things that we now know is that neurons don't just exist in the brain. We have neurons throughout our body. So we have an extended brain. And we've been looking at this in terms of the stomach and, you know, the interaction between the gut flora and the stomach and how that influences the brain. So the body holds trauma and that trauma can be very small. It can be, you know, an argument that someone had where they felt really devalued by a coworker or a boss that stays with them for a very long time. And unless they're able to process that in a healthy way by being able to connect with what is happening inside their body, they hold it. They hold it for a long time. And that creates all sorts of problems for us. This is what I learned specifically. And Mm. so the help that I had was to clear that and bring it to the surface, look at it, deal with it, understand where those feelings came from and process them in a way that allows you to effectively heal that. Yeah. But it is astonishing. And there's, you know, a best-selling book right now. I think it's called The Body Keeps Score. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. You know, the title of this podcast is Lead from the Heart. So you just start there with heart and it sounds, oh, to some people like this is woo-woo. But what I'm just loving about this conversation is just the repeated understanding that this is science. This is emerging science that confirms this and that it makes you more effective in your own life, just in your own happiness. But it also makes you highly effective in managing other people because once you're understanding, hey, this is how I'm feeling, then I think it's almost a natural outcome that you become much more capable of feeling into what other people are feeling. Mm. And then going back to what you also said, which is you mitigate any chance of resentment if you can give people what they need in the moment. So if you miss that moment with people and their need goes unfulfilled, then they leave disengaged, unhappy, not willing to put in discretionary effort. I mean, there's an impact of this. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you think about this kind of layers of the onion of self-awareness, one of the things that's so important in all of this is that with the rising number of situations where we feel incompetent or unclear or simply out of our depth, which I think is true for so many people, the inability to accept our own vulnerability is the greatest limitation. We gravitate then towards certainty. We stick to our expertise or our cliques or our beliefs, and that polarizes us at many different levels. And I think one of the things that we're seeing, and it's amplified obviously through through social media, is in a polarizing world, which I didn't think was permeating into the workplace as fast as it actually is. But now I'm talking to leaders and seeing you know, evidence of the fact that political polarization, racial, social polarization as accelerating within workplaces to a phenomenal rate. This kind of belief that we're all in it together and therefore we set aside those kind of things, it's no longer true. And what metacognition does, and this is the kind of the other end of the spectrum of the, the physical kind of interoception is one end of the spectrum in this sense-making, interoception is the other. What that is fascinating 
in what it reveals is that our capacity to know when we're right and wrong in situations is something, again, we can train. So people who have low metacognition hold the most radical beliefs in politics mm-hmm. and religion and social views, and it's separate from intelligence. So you can have a very, very intelligent person holding irrational beliefs. It's not a you know non sequitur. And if you think about leaders who are very, very bright and very skilled, but have low cognition and low self-awareness, mm-hmm. then they do so much damage in organizations because they believe they're right, even when they're wrong. So you can test for this now, which you couldn't do in the past, and you can train it. Again, you can train people to get better at understanding when they're right and when they might be wrong in situations where they don't have any precedent or they don't have any skills that you can break the intelligence traps. You mentioned this inclination to become narrow in our approach. And so in your book, you talk about frames. And if you hold too tightly Mm. and you're not realizing that your inflexibility can become a liability when you're using one frame for everything and you're not realizing that frame isn't going to work in this situation, pin that down for us, would you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we all see it with people who hold a skill set very tightly. So that might be project management or financial or, you know, a technical discipline or just a worldview about what's possible. You know, they believe, you know, something about how people will change or won't change. You know, they have a set of assumptions around that, that the frame just reinforces it. And so the frame might be to do with the discipline or it might be to do with an historical event. You know, that I've seen this before and I just keep on holding that experience up to every situation. It's going to be like this. It's going to be like this. So it's a prediction based on something in the past. The problem with that is that it prevents you from seeing all the information. Our perception is a construction. We use less than 10% of the information coming from our eyes to form our sight. We're always looking at situations from the past because we use memory to construct what we're seeing in the present. And so if you put all that together, you have to be very intentional about asking yourself, how am I looking at this? And so in a situation where you feel emotionally challenged, where you feel vulnerable, what are you likely to do? You're likely to cling to the frame that gives you some degree of certainty, some degree of value in that moment. And that's often the very time when you need to let go of that frame and maybe just recognize you need another one. And, you know, I talk about judger versus learner questions is a, is a nice way of sort of disrupting frame fixedness, but um, I teach teams how to hold multiple frames in situations and go, right, so we let's hold the customer frame up, let's hold the employee frame, let's look at the, the past frame, the future frame, and so on. And the world looks very different when you hold those frames up. Which one is the most useful to help us see what's going on, to find out what options we have, and how we can create optimal solutions? You just threw something out there so you can't drop ideas and not <laughs> not nail them <laughs> down. Judge your questions, learner questions. This is a very important thing. So give us a quick summary of this because I have two other questions I'm just anxious to get to and want to make sure we have time for. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to kind of get the meaning behind this, but the intent behind it is much more complicated. So judger versus learner questions. The idea here is that a judger question isn't a question really. It's a point that you're making to somebody. And what the intent behind the point is usually frustration, anger, fear, judgmentalness, you're wrong, I'm right. 
And so you ask questions like, when are we going to get to this? Isn't this wrong? You know, you're basically telling people that they don't know what they're talking about, that they're not listening and so on. So a judge a question really makes an assumption about a conclusion and then foists it into the room. And it creates defensiveness, it creates aggression and responses, it creates people shutting down, with withdrawing and so on. And leaders are often confused when they do this because they think what they're doing is creating accountability for people. They think that they are eradicating waste and so on. But what they're actually doing is preventing people from thinking because it shuts people down. It puts people into a, a kind of reactive mode. And if they want to make a, a point about somebody not holding accountability, they're much better asking an open question about, well, how is this helping you to achieve your goals and staying with it in a neutral sense? So learner questions are where you do two things. The first thing is you defer judgment. You ask yourself, what am I not seeing here? What do I need to do to get a true perspective on what's happening here? Have I got a partial view of this? Have I already come up with a conclusion? And what you're trying to do is disrupt a fast-tracking conclusion because leaders are often incredibly quick in their thinking. And that's partly what got them there. They're great at you know assessing situations and coming up with... But the flip side of that is they can rush to conclusions when they're feeling under pressure and they're feeling threatened or they're feeling you know frustrated. And therefore, the, the response is that they almost engineer the outcome that they anticipate because then people switch off and they get defensive and they can't think. So a learner question is a way of disrupting your own reactiveness to stay open. That's the mantra that sits underneath a learner question. Stay curious. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. I want to stop here for a quick moment before we go through the heartbeat round. So everyone, we're going to be right back. Thanks to you, the Lead from the Heart podcast currently ranks in the top 1.5% of all podcasts in the world, and it's been heard in 163 countries. If you'd like to contact Mark about speaking for a live or virtual event or consulting for your company or team, you can contact us directly at markccrowley.com. Now, listeners to the podcast can win your very own copy of Mark's book. Mark will sign and inscribe a copy of Lead from the Heart so you can give it to your boss or manager or keep it yourself. Simply connect with Mark on LinkedIn and ask to be entered in the drawing. Winners will be notified directly and announced on LinkedIn soon. And one of those winners will also receive a free 30-minute one-on-one Q&A Zoom session with Mark. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. And now, back to the show. Okay, Sean, time for a brief departure from our, this is a really wonderful discussion. I want to break away for a segment that we call the heartbeat round. Yeah. We've learned that, I know, some people don't get it, but it's intentional. Our listeners really like learning about our guests and get a deeper understanding of them. And so I'm going to ask you quick answer questions this time. So answer them in a heartbeat. Are you game? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Quality you consider most essential to your success? Uh, creative thinking and problem solving. Your thoughts on remote work in one sentence? Uh, it depends on who you are, what you're doing, what you need. But I think it really highlights that binary nature of the traditional workplace and its limitations and how we live. Books we'd find right now on your nightstand? Um, Sensational by Ashley Ward, which is about how we make sense of the world through our senses. 
and a book by Gabor Mete and Daniel Mete called The Myth of Normal. The leader of any era you most admire. Oh, I really struggle with this because no one is ideal, but when you're exposed to the conflicts of leadership, I guess combining courage and purpose and humility would be Barack Obama. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Believing in your PR. <laughs> Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Anticipate a regret that you'll have when you're 80 and do something unreal about it now. That's wonderful. Cultural value every organization should have. Humanity. Your synonym for the word heart. Center. The world's greatest problem needing fixing. Climate change. Your favorite hero of fiction. Um, Randall McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the Jack Nicholson character. <laughs> Quality you admire most in other people. Integrity. Life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. How to understand my emotions. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? What self-awareness actually is and how to gain it. And a prediction about the future you're pretty sure is going to come true. Well, at least in the next 30 years, artificial intelligence will create more jobs than it destroys. Oh, well, that's really heartening. <laughs> that's not <laughs> what we're hearing right now. So that's, <laughs> that's very, very good. And I just read something in the Financial Times that said that this whole idea of the black swan, that you know, some unexpected but huge event can occur and disrupt life. And But they said, but there's a bluebird too, which is that something unexpected can actually turn out to be wonderful. Yeah. So kind of along the lines of what you just said. So that's great. Thank you for going through this with me. Those are really, really wonderful answers. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Before we go here, let me ask you. I said I had two. I actually have three. One has to do with meditation mm. and metacognition. So metacognition is, in your description, effectively our own self-awareness and the ability to understand our own processes, if you will. And but you make an interesting assertion. You said that within two weeks of meditative mindfulness training for just 20 minutes a day, that our own metacognition sensitivity is heightened and we become more open-minded and reflective in our decision-making. Mm. So this is provocative. So what's happening here and how does this deepen our self-awareness? Well, what mindfulness, and you know, I'm cautious about using some of these terms because they're loaded for people, yeah, um, and particularly when people have tried stuff and not got any benefit. Mm -hmm. But what they all do is they give you mental space, perspective, to be able to interrogate more freely without judgment what you're actually feeling and thinking. And so athletes who have been taught mindfulness, for example, to improve their metacognition are more able to notice when they're about to get triggered and to rather than react to the triggering, to see it coming and almost see it passing, floating away from them and to refocus their attention on the task. And one that I mentioned who worked with us, one performance director, managed to get some gold medals in the Olympics for the sailing teams for the first time in, in those sports, used this and it was their kind of primary means of building that capacity in people, in the athletes. And I've seen it repeatedly that when you have the capacity to stand back and observe your judgments rather than being right in them, you have a third person perspective on your own thinking. That's incredibly powerful. And you can build this very, very quickly. I mean, to maintain it, you have to maintain it, but you can get to it quite quickly. And we're seeing 
when we're coaching people through this process, within two or three weeks, the same results that you get in the lab that people report. Yeah, I've got more headspace. I can actually see myself. I can observe myself in the moment. And that gives me perspective. And that is a wonderful sense of psychological freedom. There's so much discussion about mindfulness and meditation, but I'm not always certain that people understand or that the world has done a very good job of explaining why it works. Like, what does it do? And being able to drop in and get yourself centered and allow negative thoughts to go by as a cloud goes by is something you can actually accomplish. You're taming this wild mind of ours, mm. and it brings you to a place where you're able to optimally perform. And you're seeing that with athletes, which is fascinating, but it's no less true when you're dealing with, we go back to the very beginning of the conversation with all the ambiguity and the speed of change. If you're not centered, you're, you're missing out on a profoundly great tool. And something else that you mentioned in the book that I just love was this idea of picking a day. Now, I think truly it would be ideal for people to do this every day, but you say pick one day a week where the first 30 to 90 minutes, you're just focusing on high value, long-term work without any distractions. So your phone's off, your laptop's off, you're not taking any calls, nobody can jump in and interrupt you for a second, you're just centered. But there's science behind this, so what were your findings? Well, I think the first thing that this is dealing with is how we've trained our minds to respond to work. So there's a number of assumptions that play into this. One is, if email isn't the first thing I do every morning, I'm going to fall out of you know the race to keep up, and I'm going to get swamped. The habit, the kind of cue routine reward system that we're all kind of increasingly familiar with in terms of your phone and your computer cueing you to do this stuff is undoubtedly true. The lure is unbelievable. So what this is about is recognizing that if that is all you do from a work perspective, then all you're ever going to get is the same response, which is narrow, short-term focus on immediate priorities. And your agenda is constantly beholden to other people. And that is part of what makes us feel out of control at work, that we don't have any intentionality. The prize in the past of being promoted was more time to think more space, more people to help you. Today, the prize is more work. So there has to be some way of trying to reclaim for ourselves and introduce boundaries and transitions between different aspects of our work. So this is one idea to do that. And I found it incredibly powerful and it's helped people to overcome this immediacy addiction. And it's hard to do because it means breaking and setting some new fundamental routines. If you look at your email before a first thing, first sprint, you'll never do it because immediately your brain is now in a narrow focus. And if you think about your best work, where you work on creative ideas, or when you think about the future, or you think about a person that you need to, to kind of help or any kind of social problem, your brain needs to be in an absorbed big picture position. And the minute you look at your email, you're down into the narrow, into the detail, and it's totally at odds with the problem you need to solve. So the conditions for this is why it needs to be first thing in the morning is because that's the time when your brain is naturally in that state. You don't have interruptions. You know, so you don't have your brain clouded up with the accumulated 
stress and cortisol and adrenaline that's built up during the day as a result of all the things that you've been working on. So you're clear mentally and physically. And if you do this, what you're doing is you're making progress on something that's incredibly fulfilling and valuable in a relatively short period of time. And that builds up over the course of a week, a month, a year, whatever, to days of work, working on the future, working on high value topics that you're currently never getting around to. So you've got to break this cycle. And you asked about, well, what's the science that sits under this? Well, it, again, it's multidimensional. The first is the physiological response, which is your body needs to be calm in order to do this kind of work. And so if it isn't, you feel this compulsion to do narrow, absorbed work because your email is like a snack, like, you know, kind of sugary food gives you that quick hit. Keep on taking it. Whereas what we're talking about here is eating, you know, a bowl of salad. It, it's good for you. It's maybe not as immediate. The benefits are longer lasting. And so the minute you take, you know, a mouthful of sweets, you're never going to do anything else. Have another one. So you've got to do it before you, um, you're in that kind of physiological and mental cycle of react, react, react. John, thank you so very much. We need to end it there, but I will tell you, one of the fascinating things that I learned early on from this podcast is how many people go back and listen a second time, a third time. And there's just so much insight. There's so many new compelling ideas to become more effective in life and in leadership that you've shared here that I actually hope that people will come back and listen to it again and fully digest it. This was wonderful. So on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much and best of success with your book. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for running your podcast. It's, um, it's amazing. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right. Bye for now. Over the past couple of shows, I've been remiss in not mentioning that our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn for the legendary Duke Ellington over 75 years ago, and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. I, of course, want to acknowledge my wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Kerry Finnessy, Anna Boynton, Randy Yant, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And until next time, I close things out with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.